Foreman on Star. Brought to you by Impressions Print and Publish, the UK's favourite short-run book printer, specialising in self-publishing and business publications. Log on to printandpublish.co.uk. Welcome to Smallman Making Sense of Business here on Star Radio. And our guest this evening describes himself variously as a pitcher for businesses and a seller of ideas. And in 2002, he sold his then very successful 11-year-old firm for, I understand, a lot of money, which is very nice. And, well, let him tell the story. Jim Harvey, welcome. Thank you very much. Where did you start from? Well, I started from a place where I guess a lot of people have, in that uh, the company that I worked for for the first five years of my career uh, didn't want me anymore. It suddenly, recently bought into um, private ownership. Uh, I thought that I was indispensable. They offered me a job that I didn't want, and I said no, thinking that it would be the start of a negotiation. Actually, it was the end of a negotiation, and they showed me the door. And so I, this is for only five years after finishing uni? Yeah. And obviously, like all young people at that age, you yeah. think you can rule the world, and as you say, you were indispensable. Yeah, I thought I was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> And suddenly you realised you weren't quite as brilliant as you thought you were. Exactly, yeah, exactly. So, you quit the job or get shoved. Yeah. One of the, I mean, you got shoved, frankly. I got shoved, yeah, yeah, yeah I did, shoved. I did. We call it made redundant politely now, don't we? <laughs> or I became a consultant. <laughs> <laughs> so you got shoved and you decided, OK, I better do something different. Yeah. And what was the moment of the, let's do something different? Well, I mean, I was doing my degree that you mentioned earlier and uh, the company was paying for it and they agreed as part of the severance to pay for that and I think largely the people that I was on the course with worked for big corporate firms and I think they quite liked me and I think they were quite shocked that somebody that had marketed themselves as as indispensable was suddenly not and I think really they said to me they started saying things to me like "Ah, Jim you're a salesman, aren't you? And I'm thinking, am I? Do you fancy coming and help us with this? We've got a presentation to do. We've got this to do. Do you fancy coming to give us a hand? And I just thought, yeah, why not? Okay, so go back to your, your previous university degree. What was, yeah. your, what was your first degree? In? History. In history. Mm-hmm. So you come out of university with a history yeah. degree, yeah. go to work for Corp, yeah. doing what? I was a sales and marketing trainee for the first two years which largely meant photocopying large documents and uh, sticking acetates in frames and following people with smart suits around the world. Does it ever worry you, as it does me, the words sales and marketing are put in the same bracket? Yeah, it does really, because we were very, we were a, a company that um, had a fantastic product and our job was to sell. There was no marketing. I wish there had been. We would have been far more uh, successful and it was a very successful company. So yes, it does worry me, yeah. Okay, so we've gone past that. We've done the five years. We got the uh, redundancy money, and we are in with a bunch of people who we're taking our psychology degree with. Who go? Actually, I quite like the way you. And was Mm -hmm. it the way you sounded? Was it just the way you put stuff together? What got you going down that road? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I'd like to. I'd like to think that they saw my brilliance, but of course they didn't. I think what they appreciated was if we were doing projects or presentations as part of the course. That I suppose I had had a way with words that I didn't really realise that I did have. Uh, and they started saying, would you do this for us? And so I started working with pretty big companies, helping them write, present and rehearse big sales pitches for large chunks of work. In the main, in those circumstances, mm-hmm. do you actually do the pitch or is your job to help them rehearse their ability to present it? In the early days, I would help them write and then rehearse and give them feedback on the pitch. 
But then client asked, I've been led and helped by my clients so much throughout my career. A client said, why don't you front this product launch for us? And I said, well, I don't work for you. And they said, but yes, but you do. We're paying you. But you can do this as well or better than any of our people, so why don't you front it? And that opened up a whole new set of doors where... And soon as you'd written it. Yeah, seeing as I'd written it and helped the other people shape it. I had no content, obviously. All of the product knowledge and the expertise of the firm that I was representing lay very firmly with the guys that would do the content. But in terms of starting off, linking, being funny, building a relationship with the audience, those were, again, skills that I discovered that I had almost by accident when clients paid me to do stuff. Can we go back to school days, just for yeah. a second? Were you an Amdram guy in school? Did you do, you know, the school play and the school musicals? Did you sing in the choir? Did you do any of those things that sort of put you in front of an audience? Well, I was asked... I don't know what it is, but, um... I was asked, you know, five years old, my first major mess-up in front of an audience was at the uh, Harvest Festival at a very ordinary uh, primary school in Walsall, where I and a girl called Jackie were asked to, uh, to lead the Harvest Festival. And I knew what I was doing and did all that. And right at the end, I knew that we had to remain standing to sing the hymn. Jackie whispered in my ear, tell him to sit down. So automatically, in one ear, out my mouth, sit down, chaos ensued. Everybody blamed me, but I quite liked it. I liked being centre of attention, and I also liked the fact that you do stuff and other people do it as well. So that was the first seed sown, I just guess. A, just out of interest, are you still in contact with Jackie? No. <laughs> no, do you know you sometimes Google people or Facebook them or whatever, but I can't remember her surname. <laughs> Okay, so you've developed this. You've developed this skill set by the early '90s, where you're yeah. talking to people and helping them to develop their products or goods or services, yeah. and to, and to make those put those presentations together. Yeah. So that led to the formation of the consulting firm. That's right. There was a company that was called the Team Talk Group, very grand name at the time for one bloke and a forty megabyte computer they just bought from PC World. But yeah, that's that's what it was. Yeah. And from there, it grew into, as I understand it, a very successful business? Yeah, it did, really, and pretty quickly, I have to say. I mean, I think the thing that I learned is the quality of your clients uh, and your ability to, to maintain a relationship with them is, is the foundation for any business. For a consulting business, where essentially you're selling time, that's even more key. And so, yeah, within five years, we'd got up to a 25-consultant business. We were billing more than a million quid. And we were working with companies like Ford, like London Electricity PLC, as it was then, big corporate organisations that actually didn't really ask any questions beyond, we quite like him. Interesting. Those major corps... Mm -hmm. Did you get into a situation where you started offering them parallel services within the consulting business? Did you stay with your, let's write the presentations and do the presentations, but start mm. to offer them stuff in parallel spheres? I mean, it all started with presentations, I suppose. But then pretty quickly, you get exposure to some pretty senior people in the organisation, let's say on a presentation skills course, who then start talking to you about other areas where they think you might be able to help them. And so pretty quickly, we moved into product launches, for example. We moved into uh, major internal communications. We moved into press events and all that kind of stuff. Slowly at first, and clients give you a first nibble, you know, the idea of a million pound piece of work right off the bat, I think, is something that I've spent hours 
trying to persuade people that that's not what we're after. What we're after is a five grand piece of work with a client that we do really, really well. And that might turn into a million quid over ten years, but, you know, let's look for the five grand nibbles, I think. And it did. And that's an interesting perspective because it's very similar to the way we operate our business, which is we've often had a situation like you have where people have wanted to give us a bigger piece of work and you go, no, no, hang on a minute, mm. let's just do this piece. Mm. If we're still holding hands at the end of this piece, then yeah. let's go again. Yeah. And I think very often people come into our industry, if I'm talking about the consulting industry, mm. which we're both in, come into our industry from process-orientated organisations mm. where they think it's important to get the $100,000 a year or a £100,000 contract right up mm. front, and they miss the point that mm. that's actually putting a real big noose around your neck, and if you get the first heartbeat wrong, yeah. you've got $90,000 worth of hurt. Yeah. Whereas yeah. if you do the 10 and it doesn't quite go right, then you've got a graceful exit, and mm. people miss that point sometimes. Mm. I think it's a really, I think it's a really, really good point. And I think certainly, obviously, you know, having worked in the industry and having sold my business to a bigger consultancy at some stage, I think the thing that shocked me about people who start their careers in the big corporate consulting firms is that they have a, I mean, let's be honest, they have an arrogance or, and a complacency because they tend to go in for massive pieces of work, often government, but certainly big corporate stuff at headquarters, and think that every piece of work that they'll ever do will be a million quid. And so when they start up their own businesses or join a smaller firm, the shock that without the brand name behind them, they aren't the same powerful, big-swinging person that they were when they worked at whoever i think is kind of interesting to behold really okay we're going to go into commercial break when we come out the other side we're going to talk about what you're doing today because uh, after 2002 it's got really interesting mm-hmm. so we'll be back after commercial break small man on star making sense of business however the second half of the show is going to concentrate from 2002 to today so jim what are you doing now how is what you've done since you sold the business been different to what you did when you had an organization with 25 30 people yeah. i mean the first thing i would say is that when i sold the business i had probably three or four maybe five barren years really where i had i didn't have to work and and i did i still work with clients and all of that kind of stuff did that reduce the golf handicap by any chance <laughs> it did actually <laughs> yeah it did i'm still rubbish but my handicap says i'm better than i used to be but um yeah it did and i think actually what i found that I just got bored and I became less and the work that I did was of lower quality, I wasn't as energised, that's all through my life. So actually I I discovered something there that it's not about the end result, it's the kind of, you know, the work that I'd done to get to where I wanted to be was the thing that I loved and I had a bit of a moment, my wife is brilliant, you know, sits you down and gives gives it to you straight and you kind of think she's absolutely right, you know, what am I going to do now that will challenge me and help me? do what I want to do, which is essentially help people that I admire greatly, people that have the guts and the gumption to set up their own business, do that better. So did you set out with a game plan to find some small clients? Did you set out with a game plan, a business model which said, oh, I know what, I'll go back to the trough where I got all those lovely big clients from before? What did you do? Well, it was interesting. I mean, I was lucky in that, um, weirdly, the business that I sold my business to were actually, once they bought it, not that interested in the clients that I brought, which I thought was staggeringly interesting. So a lot of clients would ring me up and say, look, you know, 
are you back on the market? Can we use you again? And, you know, following the, the legal niceties of the contract. Um, yeah, I was. But I, by that time, I mean, I think if I'm being honest, my skills are more in the selling and finding work. I mean, I love the doing, but I found pretty soon that I love the winning of the work and, and supervising the work and handing on to people that I think are probably more skilled with me actually doing it. So I started to do that. And I'd networked. I think if you... I would say to you that I'm world-class at two things, right? And that is having lunch with clients and playing golf with clients. The opportunity to have a really enjoyable time to build a relationship with somebody that you don't know or you know to a certain degree, for me, is fantastic. Just have a conversation like we're having to listen to their stories and allow them to say to you, look, do you think you could help us? Never almost to say, I think we could help you, because there's an arrogance in that. People have got to want you. So that I'd done a lot of over the previous five years. So I had lots of people that ran architects' businesses, that ran little engineering firms, that ran restaurants, that did all kinds of little things. So I started to go to them saying, you know, actually, should we have a chat? Because I think there are things that we could do together if you're interested in, but only when you've got a relationship with them. So you've developed a small network, or mm. is it, is, have, you, have you developed a small cadre of, of clients who you work with on a fairly consistent basis, or do you find it's a, a, you, you have a sort of fairly rolling, I was going to say roller decks, but that's not quite a word. Yeah, I, think, no. you know I, mean? I know what you mean. I mean, I, I think for me, I've got probably, I was trying to count on the way, I've probably got 50 clients from the big to the small. And I saw a guy yesterday, runs a, a really nice kind of £10 million turnover consulting business, sells economic information about markets to metal manufacturers and, and producers. I see him twice a year, and I have lunch with him twice a year, and out of that might come a piece of work, might come an idea, I might write him a paper or do some stuff for him, and, and that's fantastic, you know, but I've worked with him for ten years. And in the last five to six years, I know, mm -hmm. you've really developed your public speaking yeah. and stuff, m mentoring or yeah. going around and doing inspirational speaking type of stuff. That's, that, that's obviously come naturally from your, the previous bent, which got you into the first consultancy. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. where's the buzz in that for Jim? I mean, there's two things. I don't have a kind of set of off-the-shelf speeches. I really like the challenge of, you know, giving a client who wants me to speak to a group of their people or to their business as part of their, you know, annual get-together. I'll give them, you know, a choice of broad areas and say, what do you want me to talk about? And then my challenge, which is kind of intellectually stimulating, but also a real challenge when you're in front of the people, is to make 20 minutes or an hour or two hours or whatever it is, useful for a group of people that have got proper jobs to do, real tough challenges, and not enough time to waste listening to somebody talk about flowers and trees and see the beauty and all that kind of stuff. I'm kind of, I'm pretty, I'm pretty good, I think, at understanding, you know, how tough it is for people that are carrying, you know, their small world on their shoulders. And so that's what I love about it, you know. So do you hunt out those opportunities? Are you proactive from a from a web and social media point of view in promoting Jim Harvey speaker? Um, well, I haven't been, but I've begun to enjoy it so much over the last two years or so that I've actually I can tell you exactly how much I've spent on advertising. You know, I have spent one thousand four hundred seventy six quid as of you know seven o'clock this morning because AdWords tells me that. <laughs> yeah, that's all I've ever spent on advertising. Maybe my business would have been more, much more successful if. I I'd have done more than that. But, yeah, word of mouth has been the biggest seller, and now I'm starting to pick up engagements in 
Abu Dhabi, in a couple in the States, just on the basis of AdWords, contact, show them a video, give them some clients of mine to talk to, and, you know, which is really interesting. And you have something to do with the University of Stockholm. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I've not done a great deal with, uh, with the University of Stockholm, but I work with this fantastic business that came out of Electrolux that basically sells vacuum cleaners door-to-door in everywhere across the world apart from the UK and Europe. It's a fantastic business that's gone out of fashion and is slightly seedy, seen as slightly seedier. But this is a six billion euro business. And I help them run a management program, yeah, for some of their amazing people from Thailand and Cuba and Indonesia and all that kind of stuff. It was amazing. And you recently gave a keynote speech called Personal Impact yeah. to 150 women from the banking sector. I bet that was interesting. Well, do you know what? I mean, it was the best smelling room I've ever been in, if I'm honest, you know, and I've been in some you know, dodgy factories all over the world, really. But it smelt amazing. Yeah, and it was somebody who rang me up I'd worked with. I kept in touch with them, and uh, I sent her a note via LinkedIn, I think. Uh, just said, hi, Natasha, how's it been? You know, I haven't seen you for ages. How are the kids? Just had two kids. So, obviously, life was terrible for her, you know, twin girls. And uh, she pinged me back immediately and said, can you do 30 minutes for me for this next week on personal impact? And you kind of go, why not? It's 150 women, senior people in banking. I said, Natasha, you do know that I'm a 47-year-old guy, don't you? And she went, of course I do, yeah. But we made a mistake last year. We got somebody in to do their colours and tell them what to wear, and they really objected. So you can't be worse than that was basically the... uh, It was brilliant. It was really interesting. But again, you think, these are senior women with families and careers. What can you do? in 30 minutes as part of a big conference. To make, so, it, yeah, to make a difference. Yeah, to stimulate them, make them think. And I just think, you know, if you make them think, but you're honest about it, you know, my verb is not lecture. My verb is discuss. You know, when I get up to speak, I'm thinking, I'm throwing things out, not as truths, but just as things that I find interesting, and maybe you will too, and somewhere in the discussion. I've been to one of your sessions, and I found the, in, I found the way that you... You heckled me. <laughs> no, I didn't quite heckle. <laughs> I enjoyed it, though. It was good. It wasn't a heckle. No, no, it was useful uh, it was input. Use, That's it what was, was useful saying, input yeah. about the Beatles, because you, stag- you were struggling, right? And I just had to be a lot yeah. older, so I had a bit of information. Can I just say, there's an interesting thing there about truth. I went to something a couple of weeks ago, and a guy, theatre director, said, uh, you know, playwrights tell deliberate lies to make general truths, which I think is a really interesting thought, actually. And you're right on that score there. I put a picture of the Beatles in, and you kind of think, well, I kind of know it was in the 60s, but I'm not sure where. And then there were seven people in the audience that could tell me the exact date. So you did help me out greatly. Thank you. We not only could we tell you the date, we could tell you the <laughs> yeah, tell yeah, you where exactly. the photograph was taken, exactly which right. was really scary. That's exactly right. <laughs> but anyway. So you're... Methodology, which I mm-hmm. love about your speaking thing, mm-hmm. is this interaction thing. And mm-hmm. the Beatles thing was a, a, a was mm-hmm. typical, right? Yeah. I mean, you encourage people to it actually lovely, yeah. pick holes in it, right? Yeah. And then you did this thing where you send around pieces of paper and do notes and things. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really interesting in the mm-hmm. context of the sort of people who are in that particular room. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a very interesting way mm-hmm. of getting mm-hmm. a group of people, many of whom were probably a bit shy. Mm-hmm 
to actually interact with the speaker. Yeah. Have you tried that in a room full of people with a bunch of egos? And oh, definitely. Definitely. I mean, I think the, the mistake that lots of speakers make, and I think, you know, for everybody out there that runs meetings with their, you know, with their teams and stuff, and you get to the bit at the end where you say, have you got any questions? And there's stone-cold silence, which is devastating for the speaker and actually can make you quite angry with the audience. I kind of think we forget a, a general truth, really, which is half the people in the audience would answer the question gladly if they didn't have to stand up in front of all of their mates and say it. So I think the idea of getting people to think, write, and then speak gets over, you know, the gobby people in the audience who just want to dominate, whereas actually, you know... Sally from accounts who's seen it all for 20 years knows exactly what the answer to the question is but would never say it because she likes to think first and then speak so I think that's a you know a thought for people. So is Jim Harvey heading in the John Bishop route? Do you see somebody become do you see as part of your development doing more and more of the public speaking more and more of getting in front of larger and larger audiences? Yeah, I mean, I've never been, I've never that been that worried about the size of the audience, you know, because uh, I, I kind of, the bigger the audience, the better sometimes for me. And I've done, you know, 10,000 people at a conference or, you know, football stadium in the States and that kind of stuff, which is slightly, slightly uh, disconcerting. Uh, just the amount of tears and whooping and high-fiving uh, is quite strange to an English person. Love Americans, obviously. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, if I'm honest... I would have loved to have been a stand-up comedian, but I lacked two things. Uh, firstly, the jokes. <laughs> and secondly, the courage. I think those guys, you know, the people that walk out in front of an audience that don't know them and say, make me laugh, is, is a whole different I think thing, very, that's you know? interesting. But isn't, haven't we noticed with the John Bishops and mm. the Michael McIntyres and the mm. guys like that in the last few years? Mm. And Bishop's a classic example. Mm. Actually, they followed the Billy Connolly... Yeah. model which yeah. is just walk out and start talking anecdotal yeah just be anecdotal yeah. you know to actually you know the days of telling a joke joke mm. are currently it's not fashionable yeah. and so the people like yeah. bishop would have never made it in the 60s or 70s he'd have never yeah. I mean, bishop would not have made it on what was the program with the guy who did the um we've had a meeting of the committee the he would not have made it on a show no. like that because no. he didn't tell joke he doesn't tell no. joke jokes slow burners yeah slow that's burners, right yeah exactly he walks out he does the Connolly thing and yeah. you could do that you could do that wow. seriously <laughs> and it's not a question of it becomes it, mm. the point is that you use those anecdotes mm. right which mm. become funny mm. because a little bit like you said a little earlier about mm. the playwright you know mm. What was, mm. the, what was this, what the playwright said? Playwrights tell deliberate lies to make a general truth, you know. And that's exactly what someone like Bishop does. Yeah, that, and that is very true. You know, and I think, you know, if we look back on our own lives, I think I probably learned quite a lot from Billy Connolly. <laughs> <laughs> Jim, it's been a wonderful time chatting to you this evening. It's been a real pleasure. Great, great to have you along. Best of luck with the rest of your career. I'm sure you're going to go from strength to strength. And remember, when you're hosting the Oscars in you know, <laughs> 2020 or something, don't forget the yeah. hand waving at the back. <laughs> and uh, we wish you the very best of luck. Thank you very much for coming in. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure, and thank you. Smallman on Star. Making sense of business. Well, that's it, folks, for another week. My thanks to series producer Mark, editor Isha, and our news editor Emma.
but especially to our guest, Jim Harvey. What a fascinating insight into somebody who, let's face it, didn't have the greatest start in his commercial life, uh, getting fired after only five years, but he's made the best of it ever since. Um, I hope you can join us next week. And until then, don't forget to sign up on Twitter. That's at Smallman on Star. And look out for day-to-day thoughts and ideas on business. Get your questions into the podcast page for our listeners' questions special in May and June. That's star107.co.uk. And until next week, at the same time, remember this. Don't believe your own press. Good night. Smallman on Star.